of our series on the church. It's been, it's been fun for me. We wanted to un, uh, explore and understand better what is the church and what is its purpose and what God has meant for it to, to work through us. We, we've seen right away that the church is not a building, it's the people of God. And there are various metaphors in the Bible that speak to what our identity is like as a church. We, we've seen how we're like sheep. And Jesus is our shepherd. We, we've seen how we're like family with God our, as our father, and we're adopted as brothers and sisters now. We've seen how the church is like a body with Jesus as the head, and each of us have a, a, a part, a gift. We've seen how the church is like a building in that it is built upon Jesus, a firm foundation, a cornerstone. Today we're going to talk about the church as a bride. Church as a bride, which is an interesting metaphor. The Bible says it's a mystery. I like mysteries. Do you guys like mysteries? Mystery movies, books, stories. There's one mystery that grabbed my attention in 2014. There's a, a family in California that went out on a hike. And as they were hiking on their property, that's a big property to go on a hike on your property, by the way. <laughs> uh, they saw a tin can coming out of the ground, and they began to gather shovels and And dig out, and lo and behold, they found five tin cans filled with gold coins. And they began to explore these coins, and they found out that those five tin cans and those coins were worth about $10 million. Craziness, right? The owner says, I saw an old can sticking out of the ground and on a trail that we had walked almost every day for many, many years. I was looking down in the right spot and saw the side of the can. I bent over to scrape some moss off and noticed that it had both ends on it, they said. And then it said this. It was the the first of five cans to be unearthed. And one person who was a coin specialist said, nearly all the 1,427 coins dating from 1847 to 1894 are, uh, are in uncirculated mint condition." So the question is, how'd those coins get there? And so as they began to research, there was this great mystery that they're trying to figure out. And as they did uh, some research, many think that there was a, in 1900, there was a gold heist in the U.S. Mint. And that someone stole these coins and apparently buried them underground not to be found for some 80 years, or no, 100 years or more later. Now, that's what there was one idea. They don't know for sure if that's the case, but that's one way they're seeking to solve this mystery. We like mysteries because they give us enough information to pique our interest, don't they? But not enough to solve it. Not enough to really know exactly what's there. In the Bible... The Apostle Paul compares Jesus' love and commitment with his church and his union with his church. He calls it a profound mystery. What I want us to do today is I want us to walk a a path together. I, I want us to walk a path, perhaps we've walked many, many years, and I want to draw your attention to that tin can, if you will, on the road. Because we may be familiar with this idea that the church is called the bride of Jesus. We may be familiar with the idea that Jesus loves his church. 
But perhaps we haven't explored the profound mystery that that statement is. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to pull out our shovels. We're going to dig here. And we're going to pull out some treasures. Some treasures, some gold. The reason being is this. The metaphor of the church being the bride of Jesus has a profound impact on every follower of Jesus. Now, now there is a relationship between the church and Jesus that we must understand. And then by application, as we'll see in today's passage, it has a profound effect on the earthly marriage between a husband and a wife, which has great instruction for couples, and then also by application for singles. And so all that to say... This profound mystery is one worth exploring, and God intended for this mystery to be explored and discovered. So we're going to find ourselves in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Would you turn your Bibles there? Ephesians chapter 5. I believe it's on page 978 on the blue Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, if there's not one in your possession... Uh, We would love, love, love for you to take the one that's in front of you home. It's our gift to you, and we give it to you gladly. Ephesians chapter 5. I have really enjoyed studying this passage this week. I've got to confess. I've read this passage many a times teaching uh, couples, but usually I start with the lens of the earthly marriage, and then try to better understand the heavenly picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. But this week, I really worked hard at saying, I want to understand what it means for Jesus to be the groom and the church to be his bride. And for all you guys out there, that sounds really weird. All right, so I gotta, I'm just going to cut through that real quick. So, fellas, by metaphor, yes, the church is the bride of Jesus. But I want us men here to understand something here. There's something remarkable in this picture that I think you'll come to learn and appreciate when we, the church, are considered the bride of Jesus. This is not an unfamiliar picture, by the way, that God uses. In fact, throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, that's the first 39 books, God likens himself to the husband and his people Israel to his wife. And God talks about how he loved Israel how he gathered her to himself. And then throughout the scriptures, God begins to lament and mourn how his bride Israel was unfaithful to him by going after other gods. And God is the great pursuer who went back and continued to get his wife Israel, so to speak, and say, no, I'm bringing you to myself. In fact, the entire book of Hosea is about this metaphor. God pursuing his rebellious people. This is why in Isaiah 54, 5, Isaiah could write, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks of these same ways. He considers himself as the groom. Paul talks about in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1, 2, and 3, he tells the people of Corinth, I betrothed you, I engaged you to one husband, so be faithful to your God. And so here in Ephesians 5, Paul continues to develop this metaphor. 
Let's look at verses 22 to 24. He's instructing husbands and wives in this passage, but half of all this passage here is directed toward Jesus and the church. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look first at the implications of Jesus and his church and then apply it to husbands and wives and to singles among us, okay? Look at verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. That's what God's word said. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I first want to talk about what it means for Jesus to be the head of the church and for the church to submit to Jesus. The word head is to mean that Jesus is the leader, the one who protects and provides for his church. In fact, Paul says that Jesus is the church's savior. He laid down his life for his bride. And he says that the church's response then to Jesus should be one of submission. And submission simply says, Jesus, I acknowledge your supreme authority over all of creation. By virtue of your death and your resurrection, you have conquered every one of your foes. And I, your follower, gladly submit myself to your authority because you are a good leader. And Jesus says, church, the church is is to submit to his leadership. Now, what does that look like in practice for everyone who here who is a follower of Jesus? Paul says throughout the book of Ephesians, he gives us different examples of what it means to make Jesus the priority. If you look at chapter 4, verse 13, it says this there. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, or womanhood, you can add there. The the first way that the church, that we followers of Jesus, honor Jesus as our head, as the groom, and we submit to him is by saying, Jesus, we're going to pursue spiritual maturity because that's what you want from my life. And the way we pursue maturity, we've got to be men and women of the word. We've got to know our Bibles every day, family. I plead with you to open your Bibles just like you breathe every day and eat every day and sleep every day for the benefit of your physical bodies, eat God's word and pray every day to nourish your spiritual soul. As we read our Bibles and pray, we grow spiritually. As we surround ourselves, as you're doing today with other brothers and sisters, it helps us grow. They keep us accountable. And so we say, Jesus, you are the supreme authority in my life, and because of that, I want to grow in maturity. That's one way we submit to him. Second way we can submit to him is in chapter 5. It says, therefore, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we then love each other out of our submission to Jesus. That's why as a church we talked about we're family, and as family we've got to fight for our health and our unity. And we do so because we love each other because we've been loved. And so Jesus, we submit to you and we show that by loving one another. Chapter 5, verse 10, we also show by 
seeking to please Jesus in everything we do. He says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and we, we want to please him because he's the leader in our lives. And in verse 17 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And we want to know God's will for us because he's our authority. So what Paul wants us to understand, church family, is that Jesus is our leader and that we, his bride, submit to his leadership and we do so by pursuing maturity, loving each other, seeking to please Jesus and understanding God's will knowing that he knows what's best for us. Today is Sunday, and so we know there are football games on the horizon here. We also know that uh, football games, there's a lot that goes into them. If you're a football fan, you know that when an offensive team is on the field, there's a lot that's going in to play calling in different positions people play. But there's somebody on the sideline or usually in a booth called an offensive coordinator. And what this person does is they sit up with a microphone and they give plays to the quarterback who runs the offense. And they tell the quarterback, hey, I noticed the defense is doing such and such a thing. You should run this play to go against them. The offensive coordinator sees things better by advantage of his position and is able to relay his message as a coach to the players to follow. And every so often you get a rogue quarterback who thinks he knows a better play and it usually falls back and messes up because the quarterback is failing to submit to the leadership of his coordinator who knows best. And so when Paul tells us, church, Jesus is your supreme authority, we're recognizing you are our coordinator, Jesus. You know what's best for us. We take our cues from you, and when we do things our own way, we are not, first of all, we're not submitting to you, and secondly, we're, we're walking in danger because you know what's best, and when we go by what we think is best, it's not safe. That's what Paul wants us to understand here. For the church, as the bride of Jesus. So if you are a Christian today, be sure that you're taking your cues from God and from his word, that you're not making life decisions without consulting God first, that you're not making dramatic decisions in life without seeing how you can glorify God with your life and not just be about whatever it is that's driving you to make decisions. Jesus is the head. We are his followers. Paul says here, he applies it then into the marriage relationship. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So he says, the picture is that Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride and the church submits to Jesus and his authority. And what Paul says, in the same manner, wives, submit to your husbands and their authority and their leadership within the home. So here's a word for for wives that God gives in the scriptures, and it's a a call to submit to your own husbands. Now, I think in our society, this word of submission is very much frowned upon, and there are a variety of reasons for that. I I think there are good moral values that we value, like being angered when women are taken advantage of. That's a good thing. Be angry about that. Be be bothered by the lack of equal pay in the workplace, and the lack of rights that women have had throughout the centuries, 
We should be bothered by things. So there's a moral thing in us that says we want women to be valued and we want there to be dignity. But, but what happens in our culture and many others is that this good moral value is misapplied in the home. And there's an understanding that the biblical, the Bible's teaching on a husband and wife's relationship is devaluing to women. And that then is a misunderstanding of the word submission. The Bible clearly teaches the husbands are called to be the head of the home and that wives are called to submit to their husband's leadership. But it, again, it's the misapplication of what that means. To submit to your husband's wives does not mean that you are inferior. It doesn't mean that you have no identity. It, it doesn't mean that you are to blindly obey or put up with verbal or physical abuse. That's not what submission means. It doesn't mean that you are to follow your husband into sin. In fact, the Bible gives an example where Sapphira follows her husband into corruption, and they both are at fault. That's not what the Bible is telling us by submission. Submission doesn't mean that husbands then have the ability to be dictators and bosses and say my way or the highway or do my bidding. No, the church submits to Jesus, but Jesus doesn't take advantage of the church. So what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband in a way that honors God, that maintains the dignity of the women, and actually works for the better in the home? Well, one pastor and theologian, John Piper, writes this about submission. He says, it is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. And I love this. He says, I don't flourish. This is what a wife is saying when she submits. He's saying, I don't flourish in the relationship when you are passive. And I have to make sure, and I have to make sure that the family works. This is what biblical submission is. It is the great authority and power that God has given to a woman to honor her husband's role as a leader. And so what that means in practice then is for a wife to give up her desire to control everything in the home, to cooperate with her husband, to demonstrate submission through her words and actions and attitudes. In fact, if we look in the scriptures, we see that what went wrong in the Garden of Eden were two things. It was Eve's choice apart from her husband. It was Adam's passivity to not protect his wife. And so what Paul is teaching here is a, is a beautiful kind of relationship that complements one another's gifts and strengths. And so again, if God is good and we trust that he's the good designer, we can trust his good design for the home. And his good design works best. And there are times where wives will say, but my husband doesn't lead. He's not leading. And to that, wives, I would say, pray for your husband who is passive spiritually, perhaps, or passive with the kids, or passive with the leadership of the home. Pray for him empower him, speak life into him, because oftentimes his passivity has its own roots 
in insecurities and fears and failures and misunderstandings, which we'll talk about in a moment. See, the picture of Jesus, the groom, loving his bride, the church, is a heavenly picture that has an earthly, has a heavenly reality that has an earthly picture. Marriage on earth is just a foretaste of the beautiful marriage between Jesus and his church. And there is no picture-perfect marriage on this earth. As you've heard me say many times, every marriage is therefore meant to point to the picture that is perfect, and that's God's love for his church. And so as he's instructing wives, he's saying, look, there's no perfect picture on earth, but as you wives understand your role within the home, and as husbands understand their roles within the home, your home can point to the perfect picture. That's the way that Jesus loves his church, and the way the church is ought to love Jesus. For my sisters here today who are single, perhaps aspiring for marriage, my word for you is this. Notice it says to wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. When a wife submits to her husband, she does so ultimately to Jesus, who is her ultimate Lord. And for a woman who is single, desirous of marriage perhaps, but maybe not even, God's call for you is to submit to Jesus in all things. And as you submit to Jesus, you are living out God's plan for your life. And then I would say, if any man would ever want to pursue you, you make sure he is a man who is pursuing Jesus first. Not pursuing Jesus in order to get you. Have you seen that happen? But pursuing Jesus Because he's pursuing Jesus. That's the kind of man that should interest you. The kind of man that perhaps if you were to marry, you could submit to his leadership in the home because he sees Jesus as his own authority. So Paul tells here to wives, using the illustration of Jesus' love for the church. But he goes on and gives a word to husbands and This is what he says in verse 25 through 28. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Well, as I did previously, I want us to understand first the picture, the the heavenly reality, I should say, of Jesus loving his church because that's the point that the husbands need to understand for their wives. Jesus loves his church to the extent in which he gave himself up for her. You're going to be hard-pressed to find in the Bible Jesus uttered these words, Dear church, I love you period. But you will find everywhere through his actions, dear church, I love you. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, and this is love, the love of God. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation that is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Church, 
If you are a Christian today, you are loved by your Heavenly Father in ways that we can only begin to taste in this life. Jesus loved his church. He loved his followers with the purpose of sanctifying her, Paul says, to purify us so that he will present us to himself in the last day as a church that is holy and blameless and without blemish. Notice what he does. It says he washes the church with his word in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus tells his disciples that you are clean now because of the word I spoke to you in John 15, 3. And then when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, Peter's like, Jesus, you have no business washing my feet. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no business with me. And Peter's like, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, you're already clean. You don't need a bath. Jesus is talking spiritual and Peter's talking very physical. Jesus is saying, my words have cleansed you. See, the word of God in scriptures in the New Testament, almost always without exception, is to speak of the gospel, this good news. The good news that we who are tattered, who are fallen and broken and filthy in our hearts and sin-ridden can be made clean because Jesus' death on the cross. It's to say that our sin was put on his shoulders on the cross and his righteousness was given to us on the cross through faith in him so that when he died, our sin was punished. And when he rose from the dead, we can then rise from the dead for eternity. This is what the gospel of the good news is. And Jesus says, that's what cleanses you. And that's what Jesus did to cleanse his bride, the church. So that in the last day, when he comes back, not if, but when he comes back, his church will come as a radiant bride, dressed in white, if you will, walking down the aisle from this earth into heaven and enter an eternal honeymoon with his bride, the church. There will be a banquet, a marriage supper, Revelation tells us. That is the real picture here that Jesus went to the cross for. You've got to know your identity, church. One who's been washed by Jesus and not by your efforts. One that has hope in his return, not one that despairs in the brokenness of this world. Jesus wants to sanctify you. Not just eternally, but even now. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to break your chains of addiction. He wants to break the chains of pornography. He he wants to unlock the fears and give you hope. He wants despair to be wiped away. He wants you to know who you are based on his love. That's what Jesus did for his bride, the church. You've been to a carnival before, and I've used this illustration, and you get those different mirrors, and some mirrors make you look really tall and really weird, and some make you look really short and really odd, and you're just like, what is going on when you look in these mirrors? And sometimes life has a way of doing that to us, where we start forgetting who we are, and everywhere we look, it's a different mirror because it's a different opinion and a different person's approval, and we start looking and saying, who are we? And what Paul is saying here is, you are the bride of Jesus. You've been cleansed by his love. You've been redeemed, and you will one day be brought to glory with the groom, Jesus. That's the identity we cling to. 
And that's what God calls us to understand. Paul goes on to say this. Look in verse 29. He says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So not only do we have this beautiful identity, not only do we have this eternal hope, but we have a God right now who is nourishing and cherishing you. How does Jesus do it? I love the story when Jesus multiplies the loaves and feeds the 5,000 people. And that's just an illustration of how he continues to feed our hungry souls. This is why we must feast on the word because our souls are thirsting and hungering and Jesus will nourish it. That's an amen. Come on, church. Where you at here? Come on. Jesus not only nourishes but cherishes the church. Yeah, he cherished the church by dying for us. But what's he doing now? He's not just sitting on his hands. 1 John 2 says we have an advocate with the Father. When our sin and when Satan condemns us, Jesus says, no, 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 no. I took their sin, not guilty. Timothy tells us in 1 Timothy that we have a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, sent down his spirit because he cherishes his bride and his spirit then seals the church and protects us and guarantees that we will one day be with Jesus. We have a God who has nourished and cherished us. So when we talk about the church being flawed, we know it is. When we talk about being prized, we got to understand these things. It is prized and it is unparalleled. That's our identity. So when people speak bad of the church, let, let a holy kind of jealousy well up within you. So yeah, it's flawed, but it's forgiven. It's broken, but it's prized. And with that then, Paul says, husbands, <laughs> Love your wives like that. Love your wives like that. It all begins, men, husbands, with your following Jesus as the authority in your life. We lead in our homes as husbands because we are being led in our hearts by God. So we obey Christ. We listen to the Spirit. And we know God has given us a tremendous privilege to be called leaders in our homes. So as Jesus did, you laid down your life for the benefit of your family. As Jesus did, you wash your wife with the word, which means you speak the gospel over your wife, over your children if you have them. You remind them of what Christ has done as we are reminding each other what Christ has done right now. You nourish and cherish by providing for by doing all you can within God's good and holy means to make sure your family is cared for. You're trustworthy, which means your wife trusts you. That's what it means to love the church and to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Passivity is something that has stricken every man in our society. And I think sometimes it's the guilt that we as men carry over our own failures Sometimes we've seen a poor picture of a man, whether it be in our home or in society. And sometimes it feels easier to lay low on the sidelines and to step up and trust Jesus for his healing and direction. 
But husbands, you've got to do that. You've got to trust that God, through Jesus as you follow him, will show you how to lead even if you've never seen it before. And I say this all the time, but one thing I just love, love about this church is the host of men who are fighting to do that. Yeah, that's worth praising. Brothers, we need each other to know how to do that. This is why the gospel informs husbands and wives because the good news of Jesus is filled with grace (laughs) because we will fail and we extend grace to one another. Single men, I just plead with you to be a man who is led by God. To be a man who understands what it is to be under authority and not only need to be a man of authority in order to feel your manhood. Be a man who's under God's authority. That's the definition of manhood. And single men, if you would ever desire to pursue a woman, be sure that she too is a woman who is submitting to Jesus. This is God's design for the home. This is God's design for discipleship. Jesus the head, we his followers. Jesus sanctify us. We pursue him. And this way, God makes it work. Paul goes on to say here in verse 31, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then notice verse 32. This mystery is profound. And then he says this, And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He he talks about the marital sexual union between a husband and a wife, where from Genesis 2.24, a husband is supposed to leave his family and cleave to his wife through a commitment within the marriage covenant, and then they are to weave together, if you will, in the physical union where there is trust, And there is love and genuine affection. Now notice this though. Every illustration up to this point has had a heavenly reality. So just as a husband's leadership in a home and a wife's submission to her husband is an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, so also is sex on earth an earthly picture of heavenly reality. And you're like, what does that mean? See, everything on earth is a picture, everything that's on earth that's a heavenly, that's a picture of a heavenly reality is an imperfect picture. And so in the sexual union, there is a joy and a delight because in heaven, there is infinite joy and infinite delight. There's a reason the scripture says in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the paths of life in your presence. There is what? Fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. 1 Peter 1.8, Peter says, though you have not seen him, referring to Jesus, we haven't seen him with our eyes. He says, you still love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him with, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. So the inexpressible joys that we experience on earth, the fullness of joys that we long for, are going to be understood in an eternal climax, if you will, in heaven with our God. So sex on earth is a picture of the heavenly union with God, which is infinite joy, and we have never fully understood that. So now when Paul says that is a profound mystery, 
We're starting to see something of this can coming up from the dirt. We're starting to see the, the treasures that God has for us. Sex is sacred because it points to the sacred union between Jesus and his church. And God has designed it for husbands and wives to enjoy. And if you're single in the Lord today, I mentioned it last week and I'll mention it again today. Pursue Jesus and know that through him there is fullness of joy. And what awaits everyone in heaven, single or married, is an infinity, uh, eternity of joy and pleasure. Paul says this is a profound mystery. Christ and the church. Church family, as we understand this identity of this thing called the church, I want us to understand that Jesus the groom has pursued his people. He's pursued us and laid it all on the line to redeem us. If you are not a Christian today, you have not begun to taste of the joys of forgiveness and the hopes of eternity that God offers to you if you will turn from your sins, all the brokenness in your life, all the decisions you've made that have dishonored God, all the hostility in your heart toward God, toward God. When you turn from that and you put your faith in Jesus and believe that he died for you, God brings you into his family, into his bride, into his body, into his building. He says, you are mine. And that's what he offers to you. The church is beautiful, treasured by Jesus. And so first of all, I tell us, love the church in the same way. I say, abide in Jesus. Pursue him in his word and in prayer and let others into your life in the same way. Husbands and wives, be a picture on this earth of God's love for his church and understand that you have complementary roles within the home and not one is better than the other. They are equal and equal of value, but there are different roles that God has designed Notice what it says in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife, referring to the husbands, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ultimately, God's plan is for wives and husbands to enjoy their marital relationship through respect and love of one another. And we take our cues from Jesus and his church. Another golden truth we see for singles, to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and know that God's plan and will for you is best. We serve a mighty God. And as we have walked this path and seen these treasures that God has laid out for us, this profound mystery is something that sparks our interest and God has meant for us to enjoy and know. So church family, I want us to go about this week And I want you to find yourself thinking about God's love for you. Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. I I want you to be found understanding what that means then for you who follow Jesus and how to apply that into your life, whether single or married. Because Jesus loved his church and he meant for that to be a picture that we see here on this earth. It's my prayer for us, family. The California couple, they said this, they said, they said, I never thought we would have found something like this. 
However, in a weird way, I feel as if I've been preparing my whole life for it. What they meant by that was they used the money, they sold their coins, it was their intention, in, in order to give generously to other people. You've been handed a treasure this morning. And perhaps you're saying, man, I've been waiting a long time to hear these words. I've been waiting some time to better understand this picture. And as you hold those coins, what will you do with the treasure that God has given you? Will you put into work in your life? Will you savor your identity? Will you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for the first time? Will you make a difference and do some changes and honor God with your singleness? Will you fight for your home and fight for your marriage? Will you pray for one another, the church, the bride, and extend grace? Ultimately, the treasure is in your hands. Now it's up to you by God's power to do something about it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the profound mystery of Jesus and the church, Lord. Lord, you love your church. God, I know that you have sent your son to purchase them as your own, oh Lord. And so God, I pray that all here who are followers of you would know their identity as one who's been sanctified and cleansed and loved. And God, may all of us put into practice in our day-to-day lives the implications of this beautiful metaphor. Jesus, we love you. And we commit this to you. Amen. Family, let's stand up here. If you're able, let's sing this closing song, which is a prayer for us to make Jesus the center of our lives. Prayer team, I would invite you to come forward as well. God has moved in your heart in one way or another related to this message, maybe related to the past week. Our prayer team would love to pray for you, pray with you. Let's cry out to God together, family. Let's rejoice in him together. And let this song be the prayer on our lips. Let's sing together. Just your 
Jesus, you're the same. 